0: Thanks for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only podcast where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is, like many, eager to get back to work following the COVID-19 pause on sports. And this week, Paul Tassari gets to do just that as he returns to the PGA Tour, where he works as the caddy for Webb Simpson. After 10 years working with Webb, the two are not only extremely close, but they have used that time to refine how they work
1: together. We used to get a lot of arguments on the golf course. People don't see that, but just, I guess arguments are a little strong, but disagreements on the course about what to do off certain tees. And we've made sure now that we talk about it before the round, and so we're on the same page. So we're not out on a Sunday afternoon trying to win the Masters, and we're sitting on the 13th hole off the tee, and he's on a 3-1, and I'm on a driver, and you're asking why are we you know, in these things. We try to take
0: care of that beforehand now. Paul explains what his job entails each week on the tour, from arriving Monday to survey the course, to racing to the airport when the tournament is over, to hopefully get home for half a day before the next event with his family. He also explains the business side of being a caddy. We pay all of our own bills. We pay our own flights, our own hotels, our own um,
1: rental cars and everything. So you're still trying to save some money here and there. So it's not like you're taking always the best routes, or you, you might be taking ones that are just a little bit cheaper in the same process.
0: Outside the ropes, Paul loves to give back to his own charity that just celebrated its 10th birthday.
1: The foundation, the Tessori Family Foundation, has just grown
0: into actually feeling like it's a family member in and of itself. While the foundation includes raising money by pledging for each mile Paul walks in a season, there is another way Paul feels those in his line of work should walk in someone else's shoes.
1: I always wish I could recommend players should have to caddy once a year in something that matters. And I think caddies need to play two individual three-day tournaments a year where we all get to look at their scores. We all get to look things up. um, And I just, I think it would help
0: both to be able to do that. And of course, no conversation with Paul would be complete without hearing his version of events from the 2000 President's Cup. Uh,
1: The reason why I get to talk so freely about this um, is because Tiger loves the story,
0: loves it. (laughs) There are links to photos from this story with Tiger, his foundation, and much more information on what we discussed in this episode within the show notes on credentialsonly.com. And please take a moment to leave a review wherever you access podcasts. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with PGA Tour caddy, Paul Tessori on Credentials Only. Paul, thanks for joining me on Credentials Only. I wanna start by asking you, how much does a professional golfer's bag weigh? Yeah,
1: um, I, I got three answers. Number one, it's the weather. So it depends. Uh, you know, if you're out in the middle of the desert, uh, no chance of rain, it could be as little as 40 pounds. Um, if you're caddying for somebody that might be a little less nice or maybe a little less uh, uh, prone to going through the bag and making sure it's nice and light, it could be on a regular day like that up to 45 on a good day. And then for almost all of us, if it's a British Open day where you've got wind, you've got rain, you've got cold, then you might have hot at the same time. It's going to be probably two pieces of the you know, upper wear, which will be a half jacket and a full jacket, your full rain gear, and then depending on what you want to do or not. So it can be upwards around that 50 pound mark and you do feel it I've had people ask me, you know, do you feel the difference between the umbrella being in the bag or not? Yes, you do. You just know when you put it on, okay, there's something going on. I, I knew the last day of the players that I put an extra hidden sleeve of balls in there just in case <laughs> in 2018. <laughs> um, and, you know, I like, go, man, I could kind of feel a little something different today. So, you know, somewhere between 40 and 50 pounds, probably averaging somewhere around that 42 to 43 pounds.
0: And how much? how many clubs are in there, and how much of that weight is probably just the clubs alone?
1: Yeah, so I'm not sure just clubs alone how much it weighs. Obviously, there's always 14 clubs in the bag. Well, we hope there's always 14. Sometimes <laughs> in practice rounds, you might get two extra in there, maybe an extra wedge that you're trying to mess around with, an extra bounce around the greens, or you might have uh, you know, an extra hybrid or five-wood or three-wood or driver that you're trying. But for the most part, obviously, during the tournament play, it's going to be 14 clubs. And then you've just got so many. Generally, most guys are carrying nine balls, um, and then you've got uh, your food for the day. You've got teas. You've got extra gloves. You've got ball markers, wallets. Uh, which the pros' wallets weigh a little bit, you know. Uh, they got <laughs> <of> the carry, <laughs> carrying around there. Um, and then uh, just it, it's amazing. One now again, it's hard for me to speak now because I got a guy that goes through the bag all the time. Web is really uh just always thinking about those kind of things for me i'm getting up there in age a little bit and he wants to hold my body in as long as he can so he's going through it but i've i've gone through uh back when i worked for veege i've been through his bag before where we had you know two dozen golf balls uh 20 gloves just not him being purposely rude just not going through the golf bag um and then i've also probably seen ten dollars in and change in the bag i uh, will put a quarter in the day. we'll put a quarter in and before you know it you've got 10 bucks and quarters in there so it's pretty interesting when guys really do go through and kind of battle around how much extra they are carrying around and uh if you'll see the caddies they're throwing away balls a lot of times to make sure that doesn't happen
0: so they got 40 to 50 pounds that you're carrying and then of course a golf course is never flat no. and it's up and down and undulating and everything. And how far are you walking on an average round?
1: Yeah, so I did this for about three years. In fact, we still are doing one this year. We're, we're going to have to move it on the next year, but it's called, uh, for our foundation, called A Mile in My Shoes where we raise money. You have to guess how many miles we walk. But usually, and so what I do is it just accounts when I get there on Monday and I leave my car in the car lot wherever we park which is generally fairly close um and then it ends when i get in my car that afternoon whatever that is and it's it's generally around 1300 miles a year um that we walk and again Webb's only playing 24 25 events so some of these caddies that are huffing 35 events they could be upwards around 2000 miles a year um You know, as caddies, we're going out doing our work before the players get there a lot of times. uh, We'll come in Monday afternoon, uh, walk 18 holes. That usually takes, depending if we know the course, between four and eight hours. Um, If it's a major week and we haven't seen the course, I'll spend probably 18 to 20 extra hours on the golf course without Weber, uh, just trying to get to know the golf course better. Uh, So it just depends week to week. But um, you talked about the hilly, the topography of it. And to me, that's everything when it comes to caddying. Um, you have a week like Augusta, and it's just a brutal walk. Um, is it pretty? Yes. But when you're out there trying to figure out how to hit a four iron in this little two yard wide radius, um, it, it it really does get, it takes a lot of mental energy out, but then the physical energy, it's such a hilly golf course. And I think it's the hardest walk we have on the PGA Tour. And then uh, the week right after that is Hilton Head, where every tee box right by each other, it's completely flat. and. <laughs> it's like you're going to the spa by the time you're done so uh your two contradictions
0: from one week to the to the next week okay you started to get there and, and and i'd love to just hear this you talked about pulling in in the rental car on monday morning what then is your week and and i want to start specifically when you were talking about walking the course you're doing it with a very specific purpose what is it that you're looking for and I would imagine that knowing your guy's game extremely well is critical to how you walk the course on that Monday. For sure, so let's start with that.
1: That, that is gonna dictate a lot of the work that you need to do. Um, I work for Webb, uh, Webb Simpson. Uh, Weber is not one of the longer guys on the PGA Tour. So where my focus is going to look a little different. So like, you know, to go to Colonial, I've obviously been there quite a few times, but a lot of things look a little different right now with COVID-19, about the testing, we need to get there early. I'm sure there's going to be some hiccups in the system when we go back. So but a normal week, I'd come in our Monday afternoon. I would get out to the golf course and just walk 18. Uh, and what I'm looking for when I'm doing that is I'm looking for sight lines off the tee uh, for maybe no wind, and then maybe downwind, and then maybe into the wind. And it could change. Uh, if I'm doing a, a, a course like TPC Sawgrass, you know, number one, if there's no wind or into the wind, it's a driver every time. But if it turns 15 miles an hour downwind, that's going to back up our club off that tee. And then, hence, number two at TPC Sawgrass, if you're coming back around, and if that's downwind, the year we won in 2018, we hit three five-woods and a hybrid off that tee, which blows people away. It's 540-yard par-five, but it was firm and fast, and you have to hook it off the tee. And so, but if it's into the wind, it's a driver. And so, it's trying to really make sure you have your lines off the tee and the clubs you want, but for a guy like Webb, it's a lot of work around the greens we have to beat people with our minds and with our missed spots and making sure that we don't make mistakes because obviously physically Webb can't do some of the things that Rory and Dustin and Brooks and Justin and these guys can do. Um, Hitting the ball, carrying it 310 in the air when they need to, Um, you know, Weber's gonna, Weber's sitting around that 285 carry mark. And when you give up 20 yards on the PGA Tour in carry distance, courses change a lot. And it's sad to me, but there's kind of this new age in golf course design where they, they want to force you to carry certain hazards. And, you know, bunkers would be those hazards a lot of times for us. And so uh, we have to find a kind of a different way to dissect it. I think when I walk the course, it's, it's probably going to be a, on a brand new course around that six to eight hour mark. But, you know, when I worked for Vej or O'Hare, these other guys that hit it farther, I'm gonna spend more time off the tee and maybe a little less around the greens. Where for Weber, I'm gonna spend a little less time off the tee and, and more time around the
0: greens. So you're doing that by yourself on Monday, and then do you hook up with him come Tuesday? Yeah,
1: Yes, for sure, because every time we're going to see things a little bit differently. Um, I'm generally really aggressive off the tee and maybe a little uh, more uh, laid back, I guess, into the pins. Um, I like to be a little bit more conservative into the greens. I've always kind of believed in that uh, conservative target aggressive swings as far as into the greens. I feel like it minimizes mistakes. Um, and at the same time, you know, still gives you a lot of birdie looks. Webb's one of the best putters in the world now, uh, which is amazing to say out loud after the struggles we went through post-anchoring ban. But uh, because of that, I have a lot of confidence in his putting from that 10 to 20-foot mark. And if we can get a bunch of those, we know we're going to minimize bogeys, which he does, and still have a lot of chances to uh, to get hot. So um, he will disagree with me quite often off the tee. I'd say one to three holes now weber and i talk about it before the round so we used to get a lot of arguments on the golf course people don't see that but just i guess arguments are a little strong but disagreements on the course about what to do off certain tees and we've made sure now that we talk about it before the round we'll just take an extra 10 minutes before the round go through the wind direction and holes and and so we're on the same page so we're not out on a sunday afternoon trying to win the masters and we're sitting on the 13th hole off the tee and he's on a three-wood, and I'm on a driver, and you're asking why are we you know, in these things. We try to take care of that beforehand now.
0: And so that Tuesday, do you normally play just 9, 18, kind of depend on the week and how well you know the course you're at?
1: It does, yeah. So typically now, if it's a course that we've seen a lot, let's just take um, – I don't want to use anything on the West Coast because at that time of the year we haven't played a lot of golf, so we'll play 9 on Tuesday and then the 18-hole Pro-Am on Wednesday. Um, but uh, a week like in Greensboro at the Wyndham where it's going to be 100 degrees. We know the golf course incredibly well. We're right in the meat of the schedule where we've been playing every week. We're trying to conserve energy. Tuesday afternoon, a sh- short practice, probably two hours max. Uh, it'll probably be an hour of balls, 30 of chipping, 30 of putting, and we're out of there. Uh, we'll play our 18 in the Pro-Am on Wednesday, uh, which you have to play on the PGA Tour and then you know play the next four days. So I think earlier in the year you'll play nine on Tuesdays quite often than your Pro-Am Wednesday, and then later in the year get rid of that Tuesday practice round.
0: And then you get into Thursday, Friday, and the way it's structured on the PGA is you're typically going to play morning one day, afternoon the other day, which is kind of a weird schedule, especially if you have the afternoon Thursday, morning Friday. How do you adjust to that? Because i got to think if you're off in that 8 a.m. hour, you're getting up pretty darn early.
1: Yeah, you know, typically um, our first round tee time is going to be between 7.20 and 7.40. That's kind of our typical week that we have. And yeah, it's an early week, even here at at the players with me staying at home. um, I was up at 4.45 uh, just to get out there and get my work done before I met with him. Because If you're teeing off at 7.20, you're meeting him usually around 6.05. I always have a little kind of a golden rule, a little 20-minute cushion you always give yourself. So... All of a sudden now, um, you know, you're down to what is that around 530 um, and you got to drive and then you got to make sure you eat breakfast, gotta make sure you stretch. And so it just starts going up And the players. You know, Weber's Weber's there three hours typically before his tee time. Uh, I don't think. No, I think he's 245 before his tee time. Um, he's gotten that down a little bit. So if he's teeing off at 715, he's at the golf course at 430. Uh, ready to go so it it does it wears on you Um, if you're playing early on a thursday there's no way you're staying late on wednesday you're going to leave the course early on wednesday you're going to get a nice early dinner try to get a good night's rest get to sleep around nine o'clock and uh and then kind of rest get a good workout in thursday afternoon and my favorite tee times i think most of us it's always late on thursday early on friday It just feels like you play 36 holes in a 24-hour period, so it feels like you kind of get into a little rhythm. You get out, you get going, and it happens fast. The other reason why I believe is that when you play Thursday afternoon, it's usually the scores are pretty low Thursday, Friday. They've got the course set up just a hair gentler, a hair softer, because you have so many players, and you're trying to get them around the course in a quick manner. And the scores inevitably are pretty low. And so I feel like if you play Thursday late they turn the water off Thursday night to the golf course. Friday, you still got the dew on the ground, you still got the softer conditions, you still have that moisture in the ground. But by the time Friday afternoon starts to come up, that sun has sucked that moisture out of the greens. The greens speed up, they get firmer, they get faster. And so sometimes, uh, I've always felt that you can get a little bit caught on that Friday afternoon in some tough conditions. Uh, So for me, it's uh, Thursday, Friday. And even though Weber doesn't miss many cuts, the other good thing about late Thursday, early Friday is if you miss the cut, you can get on that plane Friday night and go home and see the family. So a little bit of pessimism in there at the same time.
0: On those days where you have the rounds, you mentioned getting there, stretching, which given the amount you're carrying is probably super important. Uh, But what else do you do to prepare for the round? And then Post round, what are you doing? So usually
1: pre-round, my kind of thing looks the same. I carry a green book on the PJ tour. I read every putt with Weber. So on my green book, I want to make sure I have all my pens placed in. The pens come out the night before. So late on on a Thursday night if we're playing Friday morning. And so get those in your green books, make sure you know where they are and have all of that done beforehand. And then for me, get the actual pens in my yardage book get them placed, kind of already have my game plan in play before I meet him. Um, again, just to keep picking on TPC because I'm, I'm here right now and uh, it, it's still a fond memory for me. But as far as TPC goes, if it's a hole like number three, the par three, and the pins back left, well, I already know we're only trying to hit it in this little area on the green. We're not trying to get it back there. So I've already got that game plan in my book. If it's a hole like uh, 16, for example, and the pin's all the way on the far right. Okay, I know, hey, we're pushing it over here. We're going to go for the ridge right in the middle of the green. And just trying to make sure that I already have my game plan down before Webb gets there. Because in the mornings, again, he's he's already mentally preparing himself for the round. And there can be things sometimes that your players will miss. Uh, kind of the smaller details as they're thinking about the bigger details of the day of, of working out, of stretching, of putting, of hitting balls, and mentally getting ready to go tee off. So um, – That's usually, I'd say it's about a 45-minute process for me in the morning to make sure I had that dialed in. After the round, to be honest with you, I think this is where us as caddies, we have such a much better life than the players. Um, After the round, we're pretty much done. Um, I I won't really go back over the round that much. I I mean, I will generically just kind of do a little float over of the round to make sure that there weren't any mental mistakes. If there were, I like talking about it after the round, um, before he leaves me. Hey buddy, can we talk about the fourth hole? You know, I feel like there we got a little too specific. We got a little too number oriented there. We were trying, we had this point at 168 where we actually had between 165 and 172. And the reason why we hit an eight iron is because we got too dialed into that one number and get it out of the system, try to make sure we don't make the same mistake again. Um, But I'll do that at the course with him and get that done with him. Then I might go take a nap, Uh, I'm gonna go eat lunch. Uh, The last couple of years, the guys have gotten me to bring my clubs out and a lot of times we'll go play 18 holes in a cart. I'm not walking, that's my rule. I'm not walking another 18. I remember one year the British fluff Cowan at 60 years old uh, would Caddy in the morning, go walk 18 in the afternoon. I just, I I didn't know how he did it. Um, And I'm one of those, I'm pretty mentally and physically drained after the round. But if the boys wanna go out and go have a little three hour
0: 18 hole battle, that's fun too. You, you get into this kind of mode where you're you're having to prepare for the round. Do you find, though, that nerves creep in at all? Because especially when you get into conditions and hot weather and stuff, that can make all that walking and everything and then reading the game a little bit harder.
1: Yeah, I think for me as a caddy, I think most caddies, nerves generally don't come into play. Um, I was not that way as a player. I had a lot of nervous energy as a player. Um, as a caddy, I don't feel those. And I think it's because – for the most part, my job is very black and white. These are the numbers. This is where I have the wind. This is the shot I think you should hit. Go, good luck to you. Uh, we know how hard the actual execution of golf is. Um, I can only remember twice where I felt really uncomfortable on a golf course. and. Uh, when them was 2018 with Weber going in the last day of the player hit a seven shot lead. And I've never been in a situation like that before. It had been four and a half years since Weber and I had won. It's the tournament I wanted to win the most besides the Masters. So for me, it was Masters, then players, then the other three. And there's a lot of people that think I'm just crazy that I would have that above the British and everything else. But I was born and raised right here. My grandfather taught me to play the game right here. I went to my first tour event across the street at Sawgrass Country Club in 1977 at five years old to watch Mark Hayes win, who was then my favorite player for the next 12 years. That Nobody knew who he was. You know, everybody asks, is it Trevino, Nicholas, Palmer? Who's your favorite player? It's Mark Hayes. What are you talking about? He's the best player in the world. He won the players. So um, for me, uh, there were so many attachments, uh, friends and family, still have mom and dad and sisters here. So that last round was brutal. Um, I didn't sleep very well that night. Um, the next day I got there super early, went out, walked the golf course, watched Brooks Kepka make double eagle on 16, uh, birdie 17, almost birdie 18, shoot 62, and realized as a seven shot lead, if somebody goes out and shoots 63, you're two back if it's one of the guys that are chasing you. And so you still have a lot of work to do. You realize no one's ever lost that lead. And so I think a little of the expectations, there was only one outcome for everybody and that was to win the golf tournament. So, and then the other time was, it's funny, I, I, maybe it's that I'm getting older, but was this past year to Augusta on 18, we were two back on in 18 fairway. Um, Tiger was behind us um, with 17 and 18 still to play. We were in the next to last group, which you know that two bogeys there are possible. And um, I changed his club. He wanted to hit an eight iron. I thought eight iron took birdie kind of out of play. I switched his club and he's over the ball. And I, my reasoning was you don't get many chances to win the Masters. And that's what I said. And he agreed. And so we hit a nine iron, iron knowing that the smash draw was the only way we thought to get it close to that pin on Sunday. And remember standing on the side like, you idiot. He's finally got a chance for a top 10 at Augusta. He's been here all week. He's riding the mix, and now you've just done this. And, of course, he tugs it, and it's going a yard left of the hole, and that's the longest carry. And it's just in the air forever. And it covered by about this and went down to about six feet, made the putt for birdie. So it was a little bit of redemption. But those are the two times I can really remember being nervous. Um, now, there's some Ryder Cup moments where you almost can't it's, – it's not really nerves. It's just energy. There's so much energy on the Ryder Cups and on these first tees that I just, I remember this past year in, or in, in France in 18 on the first tee, staying aside and I, I just was kind of laughing uh, how loud it was. It was like these weird emotions were coming out. It was just so incredibly loud. Um, and hopefully I get that chance to experience that hopefully with fans this year in 2020 in Wisconsin. You
0: mentioned playing 20-ish tournaments a year um, and, You do get a home game here with the the Players' Championship at Sawgrass, but otherwise you're on the road, which adds to that mental and physical experience that you said was draining. How do you balance that out, in particular when you get into stretches where you're playing multiple weeks consecutively?
1: I think that's the hardest part is the travel. Um, We have a a stretch coming up this year. It's going to be six in a row um and most likely eight out of nine and in that mix is going to be two majors our playoffs um, a WGC and the Ryder Cup (laughs) it is going to be a brutal stretch and I won't see my family for uh let's see what is that 56 out of 63 days I won't see my family um and that's going to be tough and travel is brutal you know you're on Monday mornings you're getting up uh this coming Monday I'm glad to be back to work but I'll be up at uh, 345 uh, to catch uh, a ride to the airport to fly out to Dallas and Sunday night, as soon as we're done. Um, sometimes I'm going without showering. I apologize to everybody for that in advance, but uh, so I got to catch that flight. Um, and so Sunday night you're flying back out, hopefully to come home for a half a day sometimes. Um, and that's what will happen this pat this, this coming week. I'll get back. I land around 1030. I'll get to the house around midnight um, I'll sleep for a few hours, see the family in the morning, head out around noon and, and go to the next week. And and that becomes very repetitive. And in the midst of that one stretch, you won't even come home a lot of the time. So um, it's just, it's, it's airports, it's hotels. And again, as caddies, even though I'm very fortunate that I work for one of the top players in the world, that I do make a good living, I'm, I'm still saving money. And, uh, you know, we pay all of our own bills, we pay our own flights, our own hotels, our own, Um, rental cars and everything. So you're still trying to save some money here and there. So it's not like you're taking always the best routes or you, you might be taking ones that are just a little bit cheaper in the same process. So, um, I'm a little bit of a freak in the way. I got that OCD quality that helps me with my travel. Uh, I booked way out in advance. It did not help me during this coronavirus stage that we're in right now. Uh, I've Got a, a lot of flight credit out there and that, uh, that's gonna have to be used at some point. And I've got it fairly organized, but I try to get all of that done ahead of time. So my wife kind of knows the expectations of when I'm home and when I'm not and uh, try to get home as often as possible.
0: Do you do any work then in a non-tournament
1: week? For a long time, I was Webb's uh, main coach. Now, I I always want to be careful when I say that because Ted Kegel was his high school coach, and me and Teddy would talk, but I would fly to work with Weber for about two days every other week. Um, That's not happening as much anymore. We've been working with Butch Harmon since 2014, late in 14. We see him two to three times a year, and Butch has allowed us to send him video. And with things like Zoom now and everything else, it's just so much easier to send video across. So I don't have to do that as much anymore. And so to be honest with you, in 2015, I had quit playing golf for the better part of 12 or 13 years. I'd play four to six times a year. And I just started thinking I was missing things as a caddy. you know, there's so many different variables in this game. Uh, not only win, but you got five different type of flyers out of the rough that you might ca- that you might catch. Uh, you got tight lies. You got you know fluffy lies. You have got all these different scenarios. And I, I thought I was missing something caddying, and so I started playing competitively again. Uh, the I'm a mid amateur now. I'm 48. So I play the FSGA, which they do a great job down here in Florida with their scheduling and making sure that we can stay competitive. And, and so I did. And it's amazing how quickly I, I kind of got that feel back for how hard the game was again. So I won't say I'm really working on my craft as a caddy when I'm home anymore, but I'm trying to play golf and get better and play competitively because I think it makes me a better caddy. It, we lose empathy a little bit sometimes caddying. Um, these guys do make it look quite easy a lot. And I remember telling the story that, I'll, you know, Weber will be on nine at Hilton Head and he'll have 100 yards of the flag and he'll pull it 10 feet left of the hole. And I will think to myself, like, gosh, that was a terrible shot. And, you know, I'll come home and we're on the 12th hole and I'll hit a lob wedge or a sand wedge to 12 feet. And I'm like, that a boy. And it, very quickly, you just remind yourself, or. If, you know, these guys, if we're on 15 in Augusta and you're trying to hit a high cut five wood in there and he tugs it a little bit and doesn't cut it, I'll sometimes be like, man, what are we missing there? You're not missing anything, Gosh just hard. And so I always wish I could recommend, players should have to caddy once a year in something that matters. And I think caddies need to play two individual three-day tournaments a year where we all get to look up their scores, we all get to look things up. Um, and I just, I think it would help both to be able to do that.
0: You touched on this already a little bit on the expenses side of it, but what is the the business framework for you guys? I mean, it sounds like you need to have a little bit of money up front just to be able to get out on the road and get gigs. So again, I'm very, very fortunate. The four guys I've worked for in my career, but,
1: um, and I'm fortunate to work on the the best tour in the world and, and the most lucrative tour for caddies in the world. Uh, if you're not on our tour and you're on the corn Ferry tour or, uh, now there's some guys on the European tour making good money, but if you're a hundredth on the European tour, you know it's hard to make money. You're going country to country over there, obviously, and so your expenses really add up. And even on our tour, if you're having a guy that's struggling to keep his card, you have to be very careful. You have to be very frugal. You're gonna be driving to a lot more events. You're gonna be staying with other guys a lot more often you're really gonna be trying to establish relationships city to city you know so when i come up your way and uh you know and and see you that you know i go bunk at your house or whatever and so you just have to be a lot more frugal and again i've been fortunate enough that i work for a guy don't have to do that i can stay by myself a lot of weeks to recharge the batteries but most of the guys don't have that same privilege so it's really just about planning ahead establishing relationships and taking advantage of those things
0: to keep expenses down as much as possible and then is the wage a flat wage or is it results driven if i can so we
1: we we all have a salary which i consider the salary is like my expenditure so i try to whatever i get so my salary i think the average salary on the pga tour is about two thousand dollars a week And so if I can try to pay all of my expenses for that $2,000 a week and I'm doing good, I get paid more than that. And so I spend more than that. Whatever my salary is, is what I try to spend in my expenses for the year. And then we work off a percentage. So most guys are 6% of a made cut, 8% of a top 10, and then 10% of a win. I think a lot of times now that first percentage is going away and guys are working off 7% of a made cut and 10% of a win. So that's where you're going to make your money, obviously. Uh, A lot of guys have said it's like playing the lottery sometimes. (laughs) That, you know, you you might be having a rough year, but in the middle of nowhere, your guy wins a golf tournament and you go from being in the negative for the year, being in the red, to all of a sudden having an amazing year in one week. So I think that's the part about trying to save – I made that mistake. I got caught that 2008 crash that happened with the real estate market. and I mean, I, I lost everything, all the money I'd made. And I had some massive years with DJ working, but I'd lost it all just because I had, I kind of started living this life as I was the one that was dictating the money I made, but I'm not, I'm, I'm expendable. You know, I have a great relationship with Weber. He could let me go tomorrow or Webb could get in a car accident, whatever that is. And all of a sudden that really nice income could be gone. So try to be a little bit frugal and save well uh, just in case for a rainy day like this coronavirus has been.
0: And is there a professional association for caddies where you guys can help each other out and, and pool resources on things?
1: We do. And it's very, very recent. It's called the APTC, uh, Association of Professional Tour Caddies. And it has been a wonderful place. Uh, we've got a few guys that have really stepped up the plate and helped run that and get it started. And it's really gaining a lot of momentum now um the APTC has been just fabulous we're just now getting a group disability uh together which has never happened we're just now getting group health care which has never happened I mean health care especially for me with my son who has special needs um, has been brutal upwards of thirty thousand dollars out of pocket a year before we even get sick um and so a lot of these areas that the tour players uh, the, the tour really doesn't do any of those things for the uh, caddies they do a very small part so we have to take care of ourselves in that area um, and it's really nice to see. And I think 10 years from now, we're going to be able to look back and go, man, I'm glad that these guys stood up and, and just kind of took the reins and
0: got this done. It's been a while since you've had to do this because we've talked a lot about Webb. You've been with him now for a decade. But what is the process when you're a caddy and you're on the market looking for a player? So uh, a
1: lot of that has to do with the reputation that you've built. If you're young, so I'll go through the first time it happened with me. My, my first bag was with VJ. We were friends. He wanted me to come out. Um, and I was more of a teacher than a caddy, but he kind of taught me how to caddy, Had to caddy for him. And my eye with the golf swing helped. But after me and VJ split up, uh, I really didn't think I was going to caddy anymore. And I was just at home. I had put out my feelers. I was either going to get in the golf program or I had looked at uh, maybe getting into finance as well. And Jerry Kelly had called, and he had seen me working hard a few times. And, you know, he wanted me to come out and caddy for him in 2003. And we had a lot of success together. I made the President's Cup team that year. And it was the first time I thought, wow, I really enjoy this. And I've actually got a talent, uh, kind of a a knack to do this. So that kind of helped my reputation back up. And I didn't really have to worry about jobs after that. But an interesting story was uh, the only time I've been fired, uh, 2010. I'm working for Sean O'Hare. We're doing well. 30 in the world. Uh, He wanted to make a change. We'd missed the tour championship that year. And so I was home and I had a couple of offers from top 15 players in the world. Uh, But I, I wanted my next job to be one that was going to last a lifetime and I just, every three years it's tough. I I tell people it's like a marriage with no sex and that's not a great thing really. (laughs) So, you know, you're together so much in these intense situations, these stressful situations and there's no way to blow off that steam, so to say. And so I wanted somebody that had the same faith that I had and I was about to accept the job, and an hour before I was going to accept that job, Webb Simpson called him. He was 213th in the world, had just kept his card in the last tournament in 2010, but I knew uh, his faith was very important to him. I knew mine was, and so I took a risk. I took a chance, Um, and it's now been 10 years. Uh, He's one of my dearest friends in the world. Uh, We've had an incredible run professionally, uh, but also personally as well, and so I got lucky. But for younger guys, It can be really really brutal and the more money that's in our sport the harder it is anything in life it doesn't matter what you're doing it doesn't matter if it's in tennis if it's in golf if it's in the business world the more money that's in something there's gonna be more people fighting for that job the level is gonna go up and that's what we've seen in golf caddying and so um, now pretty much the only way to get out there is if you know someone Uh, you know if your college teammates with a guy and he gets out there offer to go out with him on the corn Ferry tour Make it work, you know, pinch those pennies for a while. If you believe in him, you can do it, then there's a chance you're going to come out with him on the PJ Tour. We've seen guys like Michael Greller, who worked for Jordan Spieth, who's a teacher, a sixth grade teacher. Jordan calls him and says, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to Q School in the fall. Will you come with me? And obviously Jordan was a great player, but you don't know, and they missed Q School. They didn't They didn't get through Q School. And. They were going around playing all these things and he was broke, they had no money. He's leaving his, you know, now wife at the time. and But he stuck with it and look what happened. Um, he worked his can off, uh, he believed in Jordan's um, abilities and now they've had a great run together. So uh, the only other way basically is to go in the parking lot and just to talk to guys or, or make phone calls or send emails. Uh, agents now have a lot to do with hiring caddies. So you you, you really need to establish those. and. Um, you know, I don't mind saying there's been plenty of times in my life where I've made sure I kept established in those boundaries uh, of I need to have these relationships. And so for a rainy day, you don't want to do it just because that'd be kind of using a person. But at the same time, you do a little bit, have some people just in case. And, uh, and, and that needs to be used.
0: It is obvious that you and Webb work very closely together and you're an integral part of, of his playing. Is that common? Or are there some relationships where someone's just really handing over a club? Or are all caddies that ingrained in their players' game?
1: Yeah, definitely not all. Um, you definitely have. Uh, it's like kind of like a bell curve. You're gonna have some people like VJ at the other end of this curve. VJ needed very, very little information. He wanted to know the yardage. He wanted to know the wind um, and what it was playing. That was kind of it. He did his own thing very rarely. And if you did speak up with Vee, you need to make sure you were very convicted about what you were doing because there were going to be consequences if you weren't right. Um, where Webb's on the other end of the spectrum. Um, Joe Scoburn, who works for Ricky Fowler, calls Weber the unicorn. Uh, you've heard that they exist, but you've never seen one. And it's kind of, because like Weber, you know, if I pull a bad club, Or if I have a bad read, he's going to come up to me and say, Paul, to keep your head up. Come on, bud. I need your confidence. I need you to be right there. Because he knows the better, the more confident I am, it's going to help him more. But it's a rarity. We all in golf, such an individual sport, I don't know how it is in tennis, but man, we are all some weirdos. You're just in your own mind for way too long and you just get this um, kind of very, very unique, different, uh, curve of personalities out there and I just happen to work for uh, probably the greatest of those but um, each guy is very different more and more guys rely on their caddies a lot uh, I think it's good and bad I feel like if Weber's relying on me too much I feel like it's taking some feel away from his from his game and we'll talk about it I'll be like hey bud you're talking to me a little bit too much hey you know if we have 165 yards to a left flag You don't need to ask me what club to hit or exactly what distance. Um, Webb and I both have a tendency to get too exact with what we're doing. Um, And then at the same point, I think some guys maybe don't quite talk enough or give their caddy enough freedom in there. So I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. I think for the most part, the more freedom we can give our players, the less talking that they are doing, the more it's 168 yards. That's an eight iron. He needs to pick the shot. He needs to pick the flight and what he's doing, then go do it. And if we feel like there's a problem, then we should have the ability to come in and say, hey bud, uh, have you thought about here? The greens are really firm. I know it's 165. We got a little adrenaline working right now. I actually think nine iron's enough. It's a left pin, we're gonna draw it in there. Then you could maybe talk about that stuff. But I think for the most part, I'd like to see my guy maybe a little less, maybe reliant
0: on me. You've said that you've gotten back into playing. You play quite a bit though. Uh, before you got into caddying, what is your playing background collegiately and then even professionally?
1: So, I grew up uh, really only playing two sports. I don't include basketball. I was tall, I was 5'10 when I was 12. I quit growing, so very quickly, I had no ball handling skills. That went bye bye. Uh, baseball, I had some talent with, but um, my dad set me down as I was entering high school and said I needed to make a decision. Uh, I remember getting, uh, I prayed about it. Next day, I got hit in the head with a fastball. Next three pitches, I backed out of it like this, you know, as I'm going through. And I went home and down, Dad, i play golf. Uh, nobody's hitting anything at me, and so it's what I'm going to do. Um, played for a junior college, one of the best junior colleges in, in the country. Uh, won a national championship there as a team. Um, played well. And when I left, I grew up a huge Florida State fan. And anybody that knows Florida athletics knows that Florida State and Florida don't like each other. Uh, the problem was at the time is the Florida golf program was really, really strong. I ended up going to Florida and becoming a Gator. <laughs> um, fortunate enough to be part of a team in 93 that won a national championship at Florida. Um, was an all American. We finished third in 94. Um, and so when I left college, I didn't think I was good enough to play on the PGA Tour, to be honest with you. Uh, even my coach, Coach Alexander, always said, he goes, if there was a foxhole, I'd want you in it. And while that was a compliment, I also knew that, and then that kind of was maximizing my ability, uh, where I had guys like Chris Couch that went on to win the, on the PGA Tour, Brian Gay, was still playing on tour. They were all on my team. And you could tell they were different. Um, I think it's that same mentality that got me my card. I got to Q School first time out, played on the PGA Tour in 97. Uh, got hurt, ripped up my rotator cuff, um, came back a year and a half later and just never really got mentally healthy. I had had some pain in my shoulder, developed a swing, a hitch in my swing with the pain on my left shoulder that eventually led to uh, the swing yips. And I never really got past them until I quit the game and came back. Uh, And and I think that was the good thing for me. Golf was, golf had kind of become my idol kind of my religion at the time. I didn't realize that until it left me. And so for me, I couldn't just go back to being an, an everyday player or a two time a week player. I just, it meant too much to me. I had poured too much of my life into it. And it wasn't until I, I left that I realized that I had put all my happiness and joy into the sport. Uh, and when I was able to come back 15 years later, uh, almost it was 14 and some change later and start playing competitively again, Uh, I still had that tendency for that old pole to kind of creep back in and care too much. Uh, But very quickly I remind myself that I'm not doing anything. It is just a hobby now, even though I love it and I want to get better and playing arguably the best golf uh, of my life right now at 48 um, that I have to remind myself, it's just a hobby and it's not paying the bills.
0: Amongst the caddies, do you guys pretty much get along? I mean, I'm sure there are a few relationships that are strained. Or are there some rivalries, and especially you know, knowing that you're kind of competing for work sometimes?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'd say not as much as for competing for work. Um, I don't think that exists as much now. There is because if if somebody loses a job, there's a chance that the guy you're working for is going to get a phone call from this guy, and say, hey, if you you know if you and Paul aren't you know if y'all aren't doing well, I'm out there. And now when things like that are hurt, yeah, then you have some confrontations and. Those are not always gonna be handled out in public the best way. Uh, you know, There's gonna be some phone calls there, some, uh, uh, some issues. We frown upon that in what we do, uh, very much so if you're trying to, to take somebody's job. Um, the other part is rivalries. There was a lot more 10 years ago, uh, a lot less now. Uh, this, this group of guys that are now playing on our tour, uh, the tour is in place. Uh, It's just different now. I don't know how to describe that. Is there still a huge amount of competitive desire to beat each other? Absolutely. But you you sense this young generation understanding that golf is just different and that we are a sport that you share information with each other. You are a sport that we team up once a year every single year and compete with each other. And I think those close-knits, you hear about in in these team teams, uh, atmosphere is that the Americans aren't close, that they don't have heart, that they don't play together. And it, it, it's just all false. Uh, the only time I could think that actually did happen was 2014, the Ryder Cup, where it was just it was a weird dynamic the entire week. But besides that, um, I know 2012 when we lost the Ryder Cup at Medina, I've never had a week like that in my entire life. It was my favorite week, including the U.S. Open. It was my favorite week uh, until the the 18 players... Just the friendships that were uh, formed, uh, the atmosphere of hugs and tears and joy when we won, and then tears when we lost. Um, Those things. And I I walked away from there. I, I know Keegan Bradley never opened the bag, he still has his 2012 Ryder Cup. Big bag with the Ryder Cup stuff still in it. He has not unzipped it from eight years ago. Where I came home, I love that week. Do I wish we won? Obviously, yes. I wish we would have won, but I still have a lot of fond memories. And So now the guys that we're competing against week in, week out, we have a lot of those memories in common. Um, You know, the Phoenix Open this year was really tough. Um, We were able to beat... Uh, Tony Finau and, and uh, his caddy, Greg, who, who's a friend of mine. And it felt weird. I, I wanted to win desperately. We had had a lot of close losses, and it felt great to win. But there's this pit in my stomach as well, like, dang, I wish it wasn't against them. And uh, at the RSM Classic this past year, we lost in a playoff to one of my dear friends, uh, Zach Guthrie, who caddies um, on, on tour. And like to lose to him in the playoff, it – it sucked to lose, but at the same time, you took a little bit of joy knowing how much it meant to him to win his first golf tournament, Cadine and uh, for Tyler Duncan, who he's worked for uh, for a big win. So, yeah, I think I think the are there rivalries? Yes, a lot of those for me have gone away. There was a lot of deep rivalries for me with like Stevie Williams and Tiger, and they got the best of me and Veech a lot, uh, but there was still that rivalry there at the same time.
0: With a few exceptions, the week in week out on the tour is. You know, you're playing with people, but not necessarily against them. But at the same time, is there part of your work that is assessing who are you going to be playing with and kind of knowing this guy's slow, this guy's fast, and how to calibrate web with that? Oh, absolutely, uh, for sure. Um, both ways. If you're playing with
1: two extremely fast guys, you have to have the conversation like, hey, we can't speed up because if we do, we should be waiting more often. That's the thing about our tour. If you play fast, you're gonna wait more. That's a fact. If you play average to just slow, you're in that kind of honey position on the PGA Tour. You're not gonna have to wait a whole lot. You're not really gonna be put on the clock. Um, And you can kind of get into your own rhythm. But the worst part is when you know you are paired with a slow player. Uh, Weber used to be one. He is now an average guy as far as uh, speed goes. That was purposeful. We set. Um, about in 2011, my first year working for him to speed him up, and he has, and uh, it's been fun to watch playing better golf. But there are guys you know, when you're paired with them, you're going to be put on the clock. And the hard part about that is it's not rushing because your normal um, demeanor is gonna be okay, well, we need to rush, we need to we need to go faster. And then the other thing is, is to watch them and to, and to get frustrated by them and why they're taking so long and why they're not ready to play. And so Webb and I talk about it the night before every single time, like, hey, tomorrow we're in our bubble. When we get put on the clock, this is what we're going to do. And for us, what we do is we typically, Webb's one of the fastest walkers on the PGA Tour. And so we have to reverse that. And so when we get put on the clock, I need Webb to walk slower. I need to walk faster. So I'm at the ball. I'm getting the yardages. As he comes up, because we're the shortest, one of the shortest players, we're usually going to be hitting first into the green, and that can be a big, um, it can be a big negative towards being put on the clock. Happened to us at Augusta. We were playing with an amateur that was playing extremely slow. We were playing with Shaw Swartzel and and Weber, and you know we had hit first off the tee on fifteen, the par five. Uh, we had a wind gust, and all of a sudden we got a bad time. And even though Web wasn't playing slow, and the next next one's a two shot penalty, which people don't realize. And so I'm walking really fast to make sure. And so you just, you have to talk about them going into. And I'm also looking sometimes if you're playing with one of your best friends, uh, Bubba Watson, Weber Loves, and I love Teddy is one of my dearest friends, but we've had a tendency in the past not to play great when we've been paired with them. And I think it's because we get a little too lax, a little too laid back, a little too uh, not focused enough, not hungry enough. So we'll talk about that the night before.
0: And I would imagine there's a certain focus you need to carry through your round people probably handle that differently if a guy talks a lot versus someone who's an absolute introvert on the course. Do you also adjust for that?
1: Oh, absolutely. So there's some guys, you know, that just don't like to talk. And so that's fine. And so I personally will do this. Webb doesn't even probably know I do this, but I will make sure the night before I have some great topics to talk about. I I might read some different scripture that I haven't read in a while, or if there's an article about the NBA, I might go deeper into that article about the NBA. I'll, I'll search out some different topics because Webb and I know each other so well, and you don't want to go really deep and talk about, um, you know, some other things at the same time because you want to keep your competitive sharpness high. But Webb and his sports site believe in something called off time, which is just once the golf shots hit, you have 10 to 15 seconds to talk about it, and then it's done. You're not allowed to talk about it again. And so you need to fill those gaps uh, on the golf course. And so having topics to talk about. Now, when you're with a friend or you're with somebody that you get along with, that helps because the players can kind of go talk about their stuff. We can sit back and make fun of the players as they're walking in front of us, me and the other caddy. We can knock on them a little bit and talk about how they're struggling right now with, you know, they said that the, the steak was overcooked this morning or something like that, you know. So we can, we can sit back. And, and those are the good days that
0: you know you're going to be in a pairing that you really enjoy having attended a few golf tournaments there is something completely different when you're grouped with um, tiger kind of in a, his own league with that but phil rory it's just a different atmosphere when you're paired with them but it's also different if you're right before or right behind them yeah and, and do you guys sense that on the course
1: well for caddies absolutely uh, a little bit for players too so You know, when a a player is young, like that's one thing I think we're about to see with when we go back to work these next four weeks with no fans. It's going to be an unbelievable opportunity for the younger players who are a little nervous in front of big crowds, who haven't experienced that yet, for them to really make a mark these next four weeks. I think you're going to see very, very packed leaderboards. Um, Usually you might see a guy come out, play great the first two days, tees off Saturday in one of the big groups and he shoots one or two over and then he, he finishes 20th. You're not gonna see that right now because you're gonna tee off on Saturday with nobody following you again. And so there's gonna be, you're still gonna have nerves trying to win a golf tournament. That's not gonna go away, but you're not gonna have all those other things. For caddies playing right in front of Tiger or Phil or Rory is brutal. Um, You've got people walking up on you constantly. Uh, For us, the bigger the crowds, the better, because we don't have to ask people to stop. But if you're playing right in front of them and, you know, they're done with a hole while all these individual people start to walk up on your group as you're trying to putt and chip. And obviously, the through line for players is the worst place for people to be walking, and it's going to happen. So uh, by the time that day is done, you're hoarse from yelling for people to stop, you know, hold, please, and doing that. And you don't want to, but golf is different. It does require an incredible amount of concentration. So you got to get people to stop. And the group right behind them is great. You get to watch all the crowd the entire day, a lot of things to talk about. Stories to tell um, right behind them is fantastic. Right in front of them is tough.
0: Caddies typically, you know, you're very much part of the action, but at the same time, people aren't necessarily there to watch the caddies. They're there to watch the golfers. It's supposed to be about the golfers. So if you find yourself in the headline, you're probably doing something that you might not necessarily have otherwise done. And that happened to you once because you wrote, (laughs) Eight letters on the back of a cap early in your career. Tell us. Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay. So, uh,
1: the reason why I get to talk so freely about this um, is because Tiger loves the story, loves it. I have to tell it at every team event. He was just the captain of the 2019 President's Cup team in Australia, and they pulled a practical joke on me on Wednesday, and for picture day, Tiger had on the back of his hat, Paul, who two and one and all the caddies had Paul who and Weber written on the back of their hats. So it was kind of fun redemption, um, 19 years later, but here, here comes the story. So 2000, I'm working my third event as a caddy. Um, I am working for the international team at the president's cup for Vijay Singh. We get paired with tiger. The first four matches, uh, we are 1-3, and three, and Tiger's been paired with Noda Begay every day, and people forget how good Noda was. He had won four times in, I think, 13 months and was carrying Tiger every match. Tiger was playing terrible golf. Noda was on fire, and we just couldn't beat him. Well, who do you think we get in singles? We get, you know, Tiger again. Uh, VJ had won the only major that Tiger didn't win that year. VJ had won the Masters. Tiger had won the next three. And so we show up, and the ball guys that had these 12 hats made up that said Tiger Who on the back. I mean, perfectly embroidered. And I laughed and asked why. And I said, Well, 23 to 24 guys have signed our flag. Tiger hasn't signed it yet. And we just want to. And the event was kind of a whitewash. I think the Americans only needed one and a half points to win. Um, they were just killing us. And so I saw the hat. I thought it was hilarious. I showed the VJ. He laughed. So we go out in the golf course, and we're one up through three, and we get to four. And Tiger's making a mess of the fourth hole. Um, he's got about a 15-footer for bogey. VJ gives it to him. And Tiger's got about 10 feet, 11 feet for birdie. And Tiger doesn't give it to VJ. thought that was weird, obviously. VJ puts it down, and it's hanging over the lip. And I'm not embellishing the story. It's hanging over the lip. There's no daylight. And we don't hear anything. And we look over on the side of the green, and Tiger's got his arms crossed like a child that's in timeout. His – He's got a scowl on his face and he doesn't say a word. So Vijay has to tap it in from literally one millimeter, hanging over he has to tap it in. And Vijay says, I think he saw your hat and doesn't like it. I remember we stood on the fifth tee, and all of a sudden Tiger turned about an extra 20 degrees in his backswing hit about a 305-yard, one-yard draw and was seven under on the last 13 and beat us two and one. And... I remember getting done and got swamped by USA Today, The Times, The po I obviously had no idea what I was doing. I thought it was funny. It was not funny. It got blown way out of proportion. Um, and, but it did kind of add a little something differently to the rivalry of Vijay and Tiger. It definitely added to that. I, I apologize to Tiger. We got paired with them the next four weeks in a row, just the way it is, and they weren't talking at all. I went up to Tiger and I said, Hey man, I just, I want to apologize. I I don't know if you took this disrespectfully. I didn't mean it, I thought it was a joke. But all along there was like this little bit of still something there. And we had played a lot of practice rounds with Tiger when I worked for O'Hare, they were good friends. And so there's just something still there. So I was working for for Weber in 2011. So it was 11 years after I'd worn the hat and Tiger was walking by the putting green. I said, Hey Weber, there's still that little tension. Watch this, I'm going to get him. He's walking in front of me, I said, said what's up tiger who and he goes what's up two and one and he kept walking about (laughs) 20 yards (laughs) and he stopped turned around and gave me that big old grin that we see all the time now and he kept walking but you know it it did break the ice and tiger and i have been incredible since then and um, he texts me every now and then and i'll text him every now and then but like he he definitely had it I think every time he saw me, he didn't think Paul. He thought two and one because when I said Tiger Who, there was no break. There was no two-second pause. It was, what's up, Tiger Who, what's up, two and one, as he turned around. And he loves the story now. His favorite part is the scowl, the temper tantrum when he saw the hat um, on the side. So it makes for a great story now. I didn't like that part of my career because I think people didn't understand the real story uh, you know, here was this American caddy wearing a Tiger Who against the greatest golfer of our generation uh, and I believe of all time. And um, I'm glad that the truth gets to come out now and the Tiger likes it, but it, it's made for a good story now.
0: I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about something that you referenced earlier. Uh, a mile in my shoes and everything you do with the, the Tessori Family Foundation and Isaiah and your wife Michelle is a huge part of all that. I'd love to just give you an opportunity to – Expand on what you do outside of golf with your charity.
1: Yeah, you know, the, the foundation, the Tessori Family Foundation, has just grown into actually feeling like it's a family member in and of itself. It uh, started very, very small. Uh, I always use the excuse that I don't want to do this until I can do it all out. And my wife, who runs nonprofits for a living, Um, looked at me and she goes, that's an excuse. That's a scapegoat. No, you change one life, then you change two, then you change four, then you change eight. That's the way you do it. There is no, uh, I'll wait. That's an excuse. And so we did. And so we started it, I think we formed it late in 09 and we started doing some small things locally in 2010, but it wasn't until 2014 that my son Isaiah was born with Down syndrome and it gave us a really clear direction that we wanted to go. And So uh, we've been able to raise over one and a half million dollars now in goods and services, uh, most of it in the last six to seven years. Um, One of my favorite events, we have these all-star kids clinics. So we do a clinic for 25 kids with special needs, one-on-one instruction with PGA Tour players, caddies, and coaches. And we started with one, then it went to two. This year on the PGA Tour, uh, we have 20 following the tour. Um, And it's just been tremendous. Uh, Each week that we go out, uh, parents will come to us in tears and all we're doing is just introducing them to the game that has been so good to us. Um, and then a mile in my shoes, we just raised some money uh, as people guess to see how long that we walk. But my wife's program called Buddy Baskets where parents that have kids that are born with special needs, a lot of times we never get a chance to celebrate the birth of our children. Um, right away, generally when you see people, are like, "I'm so sorry," and we know people mean well by that, but we actually don't want that. We actually want to say, "Hey, congratulations on your baby boy or girl. Hey, if you need anything, let me know. We'll pray for you." And and then that kind of uplifts it. But usually, right away, it's you know your child's whisked away to the NICU. Uh, well, these are the issues. I mean, Isaiah was working with a speech therapist at four days old, and people don't understand that it's just on tongue control and everything. It's not really obviously can't talk, but on tongue control and doing these things. And so Buddy Baskets, we do this big basket that has about $3,000 worth of goods that have nothing to do with paraphernalia about Down syndrome or autism or whatever else. It's just go celebrate, gift cards to dinner, uh, monster energy drinks, which got me through every single night as we were going through it all. Some, uh you know, some some recipes in there and all these other good things and trying to celebrate these births. and. Uh, another thing for us that we do here locally is uh, it's called Christmas tree angel. Uh, and where we buy gifts for a hundred families. We buy the gifts, we wrap the gifts and we deliver them. It. I mean, it's just some fun things. So go check us out to sorryfamilyfoundation.org um, We will take anything. Prayers are fine uh, or obviously uh, donations, but just uh, maybe even volunteering at your local area. When we come into town, any of those things we're, uh, we're thankful
0: for. And I will link to the the charity website in the show notes. And I'll I'll also, of course, sprinkle in some of these uh, great moments, including the Tiger Who hat, uh, because that that is definitely on the internet. So that's easy to (laughs) get. I love it. I want to close a few rapid fire specific for you before I get to the set pieces. Uh, And and I think you gave one of these already, but what are the hardest courses to work?
1: So I'd say Augusta is the hardest course to work uh, just because of how exact you need to be there um, how difficult the walk is and just the added sense i have a heightened sense of stress of how big the week is probably another one i would throw in at the same time is wherever the u.s open is that year <laughs> it's just it's a brutal week in tough conditions every single time
0: what's your favorite course to work or course is
1: yeah, so, so this one's hard. So we'll take the players out. The players has always been my favorite uh, just because I'm here locally. We've won it. And I love it, but I just love ones that treat us as caddies extremely well. So I'd say, I think Phoenix for me has now moved up the number one and it's incredible how fast it used to be down on the list, but they treat us incredibly well now the fans there. Yes, they're rowdy, but for one week out of the year, it's not bad at all. The energy, uh, we've now, uh, afforded, we just won it this year, which has made it even better, but I would say probably Phoenix is,
0: is my best. Is there a course that you've not worked that you'd like to be able to? Wow. Is there a course I've not worked that I would love to be able to?
1: Um, My goodness, I believe I have worked. I think I've worked them all. I don't think there's one out there that I haven't worked. There might be some of the more recent ones. Like in, I would love to do Mississippi. I've heard a lot of great things about the golf courses in the fall series now. It's a newer golf tournament. Um, I love the tournament director. He's become a dear friend, Steve Gent. Um, The golf course is great, Um, and I actually like the area, but uh, it's kind of been a newer event.
0: But that would probably be my one for now. Is there a single round that sticks out during your career that your guy had?
1: Yeah, for sure. Definitely the second round of the players 2018. So we were tied for the lead after the first day, shot six under. Friday we had that afternoon tea time, which you don't want after a bunch of low scores at the players and sure enough we show up friday the wind's up to 10, to 10 to 15 miles an hour the course is turning brown and firm and if somebody had given me 3 under i would have sat back and watched tv all day and we're walking down the 16th hole and somebody yells out from the fan three more for, from the fans three more for 59 weber and i said out loud i go have another buddy and I'm starting to walk, I walk about another 50 yards, I'm starting to go through the round, I realize we're a, we're 10 under par on the 16th hole and we've hit a perfect drive. We have a chance to shoot 59 at, the, at TPC Sawgrass in hard conditions. I thought we were seven under, I was three off. I didn't realize how low he was. And just realizing that he was 11 under through 16, I've had so many players come up to me and, and say, that was impossible. It, if we would have finished par par, we made double on 17, hit the ball kit on 17, got caught in between clubs, made double to shoot 63. If we would have finished par par, I believe it would have been the greatest round of golf that's been played. It, it was almost impossible. I think the next lowest score that afternoon was 67 or maybe even 68, and we had a chance for 61. So that, that, that would be the one.
0: What about a best round that you got to walk with? Not your guy, but one of the guys you were partnered with had an unbelievable round.
1: Yeah, man. There's been a. So Justin Thomas has shot 261s on us, but I got to go with, uh, with Tiger. Um, it would have been, oh my goodness. It was back. He's done it to me so many times. Uh, he's gone low so often, but it was in Boston. He shot 63 the last round of Boston one year and missed three putts inside of six feet, which he's never really done before. Uh, just an incredible ball striking round. One of those days that you realize that I worked for one of the top 10 best ball strikers, I believe of all time, being VJ. And that day, uh, we had, a, I think, a two-shot lead going into I think we shot three under and lost by three. And you just realize that day that, as great as VJ was that when Tiger was at the top of his game, he made us look mundane. He made us look average. And there was nothing average about VJ's ball striking, and he made us look average. Um, And it was just – I have so many Tiger stories to tell about, like, when he was in his prime that I was fortunate enough to watch um, right up front um, but that was one of those special days, that last day, that pissed me off because we were trying to beat him. And he beat me so many times, or beat VJ slash O'Hare slash all this. But that was one of those that stuck out the most.
0: If you could have an ultimate foursome, who are the other three players who are joining you for a round? So I'm always going to
1: say my dad. Um, man, he's just meant so much to me. I get emotionally even talking about him. So he'd be number one. The next one would be Bobby Jones. I just would love to ask. I can't believe he never turned pro. I still can't believe it to this day. There was more and more money in it back then. He was the greatest player in the world at the time. And uh, I know there was so much pressure on him to turn and to turn back around and go back to being a lawyer after winning the Grand Slam. How do you do that? How do you go sit in an office after that? I have no idea. I would love to ask. And then my other one would be Billy Graham. Just for a man of faith myself, uh, he loved golf. And just to seek and soak in some of that wisdom would be incredible
0: for me. And then where are you going to play that round?
1: <laughs> I, it's, so, it's such a hard golf course. I'm going right back to Augusta. I got to do it. I've been able to play it a few times now, I like think four rounds and I'm going to go back to Augusta and play there.
0: All right. I want to close with the set pieces, which is the six questions I close every episode with uh, starting with, podcasts or newsletters, anything you're kind of getting, make sure you're you checking out every day or every week.
1: Yeah, I'm a huge podcast guy. Basically, I just do faith-based podcasts because I love them so much. I follow Matt Chandler um, and uh, who is – uh, with the Village Church out in Dallas, and I do Joby Martin at our church here at 1122. I just, I love listening to wise pastors expositionally go through the Bible. And for those of you that don't believe, um, you know, in Christianity, it's still great to go through in this historical aspect of a book that you might not believe is from the Son of God, but it's just great to really understand about you know, the Hebrew language, where it came from, the Greek behind it. And they just do a great job of kind of explaining that stuff. And so I could put it on for six, seven, eight hours and let it go. And I do a little bit of golf. I'll go back and and listen to some golf tournaments too. If there's a tournament that I got coming up that I'm a little unsure of, and, and maybe try to pick up a little bit
0: here or there. Who are your most valuable files? The social media posts you don't want to miss.
1: Yeah, so Allie Beth Stuckey, she is a Christian conservative on Twitter. Um, I just think she does an incredible job stand up for Christian uh, values, but also in a conservative way, but using truth to back it up. She doesn't call people names. She doesn't attack, doesn't bully anybody. She just gives it factual based um, and really kind of defends the values. To be honest with you, I'm not smart enough. I don't get into politics enough because I'm not smart enough to understand the dynamics a lot of stuffs going on right now with, with Drew Brees in our world, and I feel for him because I, I under, he just wasn't educated. That's the problem. People are giving Drew this hard time about being a bad person. He wasn't a bad person. He just wasn't educated enough to know what Cap was really trying to do there, and that's on us. And we got to educate ourselves better.
0: What are a couple books that you recommend? For so people to read?
1: one for me that's kind of had an impact on our life. Uh, I need to do a better job following it. But it's called Tech Wise Family. And it's basically this attitude that technology is great. It's a blessing, but it can really be a curse to your family as well. And it's a small book, it's an easy read, but it gives you a really good process going forward of how to manage technology in your family, do it well, but also make it into a fun thing for the family instead of being feeling like you have handcuffs on. And the other one I'm reading right now is it's called Proverbs by Ortland. Again, as a follower of Christ, it's a great book to read about Proverbs. But again, if you're not a believer and just want to know the historical background,
0: it's, it's a good read as well. What are you streaming? What's the binge watching happening in your household?
1: Boy, uh, Michelle and I have been on a good run. So Defending Jacob, um, Apple Plus has done a great job, but Defending Jacob, we just finished that. It was incredible. Uh, What a great series. Uh, The Morning Show with Jennifer Aniston and Steve Carell, an incredibly good watch. Um, I I thought I was too old, but Stranger Things. Uh, We're on season three right now. I've never seen it, but we we had a little get together uh, kind of post-quarantine with my family. Um, And I knew that there was three generations there that had seen Stranger Things and they all liked it. So we started watching it and we're hooked now. We're in season three. So uh, we just finished Homeland, which was fantastic.
0: And now we're on Stranger Things. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid?
1: Yeah, definitely uh, the 86 Masters. I still remember it. I was only 14. I still remember watching it like it was yesterday. Just The goosebumps hiding behind the couch as he's trying to do it, uh, trying to pull off something that we all thought was impossible at the time. I would say uh, him and then very close would be just being there, being in the next to last group, watching Tiger win the Masters in
0: 2019. I ask everybody if they collect their credentials, but I suspect you might have other things you have as mementos. So I'll make it a little bit broader. Do you collect anything as mementos? From all these tournaments?
1: I do. I've been fortunate to win 20 plus tournaments caddying um, since I started in 2000. Uh, and I have, I think every flag and most bibs from each of those wins. So, and they're hiding in some bibs somewhere. I need to get those in some bins. I need to get those out. But those are the only things I really collect. I do have all my masters, um, you know, ID cards as well.
0: Paul, I really appreciate the conversation and glad you're getting to get back out on tour here. So good luck when you guys are back out on the road to you and Webb. And thank you so much for taking the time.
1: I thoroughly enjoyed it. Hopefully we'll win something big coming
0: up and we can do it again. I learned so much from Paul during this conversation. His is a job that I've observed so many times, but now have a much better understanding of. My thanks again to Paul for sharing all these insights with us on this episode. Thanks to you as well for listening. Please take a moment to leave a review wherever you are listening. And if you liked it, tell a friend. Don't forget, you can find more information on what we discussed in the show notes on credentialsonly.com. And while you're there, give us your email address and we will slide in your inbox when we have a new episode to share. Mike Miche edits Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.